Does that bring back feelings of anxiety? <laughs> Anybody? Is that like stirring up good feelings? Like, I love lunch, or maybe it's, it's your worst nightmare. The, the more I, I talk about this and <clears throat> the more I've shared this video with people, uh, the more I realize it's, it's quite common to feel this way. Maybe you felt this way. Um, I, I didn't, only because, not because I'm that cool. Uh, I went to a private Christian school, and my class had six people in it. So <laughs> we fit at a table. There was no choice. You sat at one table, and all of you sat and ate your lunch. So uh, high school wasn't that intimidating to eat lunch. But, but then I, I went to college with hundreds of kids. And I remember that first time, get, get, you know, getting my train, getting my lunch from the line, and turning into the cafeteria, and like feeling like a fish out of water. Like, man, could it have been more awkward? And for some of you, maybe you felt like me, and you turn that corner and you walk in, and really the decisions are already made for you, right? There's, for me, it was the popular kids, the kids that everyone knew. They had their tables. They were the long tables and the big round tables, and there was noise, and everyone was laughing. Then there was the kids like me who didn't know where to sit. Maybe uh, you walked in, and maybe you found yourself making the decisions based on, you know, that's where the rich kids sat, and then the poor kids sat over there, and, and I'm, maybe I'm somewhere in between, but, you know, to the rich kids, you're still considered poor, so you don't know where you fit. Maybe it had nothing to do with, maybe it, it was simply by the color of your skin. You walked into school, and the decision was made for you. Now, I, I know, I read this week, that Maine is the least diverse state in America, that 90% of Mainers are white. And you say, but Jim, I don't struggle with that. I was the majority. What about the 3%? Where was their seat? How did they feel coming in to a cafeteria? Was the decision made for them? Was it awkward to find their place? You see, what I find really incredible is, is that as humans, this isn't a Christian thing and a non-Christian thing. This isn't a white thing or a black thing. It's just a, a people thing. That as people, we surround ourselves with people who like us, don't we? It's just human nature. I want to find the people who like me. And not only that, we even take it a step further. Not only do we sit with people who like us, we sit with people who are like us, with people who believe the same way we believe and think the same way we think and believe the same way we believe. Maybe you find yourself when you're walking into the cafeteria, you know, you walk past the, the jocks and the preppy kids and the math kids because we're not that smart and the drama kids because I'm not that dramatic and you're trying to find your place. Maybe looking at some of you, you know, you found your way to like the goths and the hipsters or the hippies depending on went to school. Uh, that was clearly a joke. None of you are, are dressed up that way, but it's okay if you did. Maybe you found yourself like a, the Christian kid in school. And you didn't know where to sit. You, you, you know, there was a group of Christian kids, and it was uncomfortable. You didn't want to go sit with them because they had their Bibles out on the table. And it's like, I'm at lunch. Who wants to read? <clears throat> Maybe you were the Christian kid and found just no one wanting to sit with you. Wherever you find yourself in that situation, what's interesting is uh, most people are attracted and, and navigate towards the people we know, the people who we like, and the people who are like us. I, I found this really interesting. I, I actually just heard this term this week. Have any of you ever heard of the term brony? Does anybody know what a brony is? One person, or two, I saw headshakes. The rest of you, you're in for a treat. I get to share this amazing information with you. Here's what a brony is. A brony is a bro or a dude who loves My Little Pony. No joke. There is a faction of people that are so in love with My Little Pony, of, and it's not just people, a faction of guys that are so in love with My Little Pony, they love sitting together in groups and talking about Rainbow Dash and, and all the other ones. I have three daughters, so I'm allowed to know that. <clears throat> No, seriously, not, not a brony. But I have three girls. This is what they do. There, there are people. It's just in human nature. We form these little groups, these little sects of people where we gather with people we know and people we like, and we're really comfortable in that area. We're really comfortable just sitting with the people we know and sitting with the people who are like us. 
And, and you know, you find yourself maybe in middle school or high school or like me in college thinking, yeah, you know, it's going to stop now, right? It's going to stop in middle school. It'll end when I get to high school. It'll end when I go to college. It'll end when I graduate. It doesn't end, does it? I mean, really, is this just a first century thing or is this a 21st century thing? Look, look, look at our world. We are more politically divided than we've ever been. I read this, that in 1976, <clears throat> across America, in 1976, one out of four Americans, 25% of American counties won political races in a, in a landslide. And this wasn't based on, on, on you know, who was going or a popularity contest. This was just politics. And only 25% of communities won by a landslide. Fast forward to 2016, 80% of counties won in a landslide. We really are finding our people moving together and staying together and pushing everyone else out. It's what we do. We, we, got, we get the people we like, we get the people that like us, the people that believe and think and, and, and do all these things the same way. And if you're not part of that, you're out. You're not part of us. Go somewhere else and find your own people. We necessarily don't want you here. So our society has become segmented politically. We have, what party do you affiliate? And if you affiliate with my party, if you're red, you're in. If you're blue, you're out. We, we, we affiliate by sexual orientation or sexual identity. We affiliate by race and by religion. And Christians, really, we, we have a reputation for being the worst at this. We have a reputation for, for being the people that, that just find ways to create like subcategories and subgenres and, and, and like these little like, like subcommunities, if you will, like circles and spheres of people that strictly say, you have to believe the way I believe. You have to live the way I live. Talk the way I talk. Think the way I think. And if you do, you're invited to sit at my table. But if you don't, there's the door. See, we're so good at finding the people we like and pushing out the people we don't. We've actually, in our culture, have become more and more segmented and more and more fragmented. And what I find incredibly interesting, when you look at the life of Jesus as we're going to do, what you find is that Jesus wasn't like that. And even taking it a step further, I believe Jesus wouldn't like that. That that's not at all why Jesus came. And as we look at this incredible story, we're going to see that Jesus, more than any other person probably in, in, in the, the Bible, in Scripture, was willing to break through social norms and was willing to break through what our ideas of how we behave and how we live and who we associate with. And this is challenging. It's one of the most challenging things when you begin to inter, interact and intersect with the life of Jesus. Jesus, what table do I sit at and who should be sitting with me? It's the people I like and the people who like me. And everyone else, they can find their own table, but, but they're, not, they're not invited to heal. This, this is reserved. I don't know where they should sit, but they shouldn't be sitting with me. So let, let me ask you, again, is this just a first century thing? Or is it a 21st century thing? And by the awkward silence, I think we can all agree. No, it's It's today. You see, though we're becoming more diverse, though our culture's becoming more diverse, though our society is becoming more diverse, our society is actually becoming simultaneously more divided, segmented, uh, balkanized, and homogeneous as well. It's becoming tougher to disagree with someone and still have a relationship with them. Our government is timed. Our elections are no longer uh, contests over, over politics. They've become bitter wars or bitter choices over different ways of life. And we find ourselves in the mix. And we're finding people, and we're clumping together, and we're isolating our communities, and we're isolating our groups and our friends, and we're, we're isolating our homes, and we're isolating our churches. Because we found the people we like, and we found the people who like us. You see, this wouldn't be a problem 
except that it was a problem for Jesus. He didn't seem to live his life this, this way. As a matter of fact, he found ways to have incredible civil and terrific conversations with people that seemed to complicate things. So today, all I want to do is tell you a story. I want to tell you a story that I, it's a story you're probably very familiar with. It's a story that, that's really challenging, that every time I read it, it challenges me. I'm going to do my best not to cry this service, but I, I didn't make it through the first one that way. If you're a Christian, you're going to be super familiar with this story. You're going to know as soon as I start where we're going. If you were raised in church, you're going to totally understand where this is coming from. If you weren't raised in church, if you're not a Christian, if you find yourself here because someone invited you or they bribed you uh, with lunch afterwards or whatever it might be, they, they told you to come because we have some awesome greeters and they just make you feel better than any time you do during the week, whatever it might be. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe in religion, if you're not even sure about this church thing, my guess is, as we cover this, that you're going to say, this is the thing. This is what I hate about Christians. This is what I hate about Christianity. This is why I don't like the church. And you're welcome to sit there in your own little bubble. But you're also welcome to engage. Welcome to take a step outside that bubble and see if there's something we can't do together. The story takes place in John chapter 4. The writer of John is John, the disciple of Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends, closest followers. John covers this, this incredible story, and it takes place just in one chapter. John starts off by telling us this. So he, Jesus, he left Judea, and he went back to Galilee. He went back to Galilee, and John's basically telling us this. He's kind of giving you some context. He's letting you know what's going on in this Middle Eastern world that, that we're so far removed from, centuries removed from. He's making sure we understand. He's starting off by making sure we understand what's going on in the story. He said, now he had to go through Samaria. And, and if, if you're a scholar, if you studied your Bible, if you've looked at the maps in the back, <clears throat> the little cheat sheet, my guess is you look at it and you say, he didn't have to go through Samaria. And you'd be right. He didn't have to go. You see, there was another way around because if you were a Jewish person, you didn't like Samaria, you didn't like the Samaritans. So instead of taking the easiest route through Samaria, what Jews would typically do is they'd find the Jordan River and they'd like navigate down the Jordan River. It would kind of just like border the, the, the nation of Samaria. They'd go all the way down to the bottom and then they'd just have to cut through like the small corner of the nation to avoid Samaria altogether. Jesus didn't have to do that. But it's, what's interesting is that John said that he had to go that way. It's almost like Jesus is telling us just in his navigational choice, just in his route, I'm going to do something. That's completely countercultural. I'm going to do something that, that nobody else likes to do. I'm going to travel through Samaria. One of my favorite titles for Jesus was given to him by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote a bunch of letters that makes up most of our New Testament. And in one of those letters, he, he calls Jesus this incredible title. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And I like that because sometimes for me, it, it's hard to think about God, isn't it? Because God's invisible, and, and no one's seen God but the Son. Like, like we don't have this idea of, of how do I follow after God, and, and that's hard. And it's almost like Paul is saying, yeah, I get it. It's frustrating, and it's hard. But here's what you need to know. If you want to know, know what God would do, look at what Jesus did. If you want to know about what God would say, look at what Jesus said. If you want to know where God would go, follow Jesus because he's going to take you there. You see, all this whole idea of God, it's wrapped up and it's personified in Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who Jesus would invite to his table, to his table follow Jesus and see who Jesus invites to his table. If you want to know where Jesus would go and who he'd engage with, follow him and see who he'd engage with. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So let's follow him. The story goes on. He says, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, 
or <clears throat> a sakar, however you pronounce it, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. All this is context. He's saying all of this just to let you know this is a real place. This is where it actually happened in Samaria. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was clearly tired from his journey. So he sat down by the well, and it was about noon. And after, I mean, you wonder, why would he point out that it was about noon? Because if you've ever been to this part of the world, you know no one went out at noon. If you've ever been out of Maine in the summer, like head down to, to Georgia, South Carolina, Florida in the summer, it's hot. I just talked to a lady who was just in Florida this week, and it's hot. It's like 90 degrees and humid. You head down in the summer, and it's like standing on the face of the sun, right? It's hot. That's what it was like in this part of the world. He's pointing this out because this is, no, one, no one is around at noon. No one goes out of their house at noon. They hide inside. They sit under shade because it's hot. It's like standing under the face of the sun. No one wants to do that. But Jesus found himself at a well around noon. And he has this interaction with this incredible woman. And this conversation is recorded. And I'm so glad it is because it, it just changes the way we view other people. <clears throat> when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now, this Samaritan woman was struck by how awkward th th this scene played out. We don't have all the context, but John's going to give us some help. He says, A Samaritan woman asked him, Well, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And it's as if John knew that somewhere down the line, that generations and generations later, if this letter makes it, if people, if people read this story, somewhere down the line, they're going to forget all the history. They're going to forget all the animosity. They're going to forget why the, the Israelites, why the Jews don't like the, the Samaritans. They're going to forget all this, so I've got to give them some context. I want them to know why this is so important, why it's such a big deal that Jesus went through Samaria and then talked to this Samaritan woman, because Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Because the Samaritans were, were like this half-breed of society. The Samaritans, were, their result, their, their, their nation, their, their people group, is a result of a, the Assyrians coming into Jerusalem and taking over the northern kingdom and keeping Jews in captivity. Until 721 B.C., when they were kicked out of the land, some Assyrians stayed, they intermarried with Jews, and they formed this kind of half-race of people uh, they're called the Samaritans. And by the Jews, they were looked at as unholy, as abominations, as the fringe of society, as like, these are the worst of the worst. They're not good. They're not bad. They remind us of this awful time. They remind us of, cap of captivity and slavery and, and punishment. Like, we hate the Samaritans. They are the worst of the worst. Jews don't associate with, the, with Samaritans. And the level of like, like social no-nos, the level of like social taboos that are just layering in the story, they just keep building and keep building. And what's interesting is that Jesus has no regard for this. He just breaks right through them. And it's as if it's not bad enough that Jesus is a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. Right? Jews don't talk to Samaritans at all. That's a no-no. Men don't talk to women, let alone a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman, a holy man talking to this woman. It's like there couldn't be more tension around this conversation. But the tension continues to build. The story goes on. Jesus answers her. It says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would ask him, and he would have given you the living water. And Jesus is clearly changing the context of a conversation. He's not talking about this, this physical appetite, this physical thirst. He's talking about something deeper, something more spiritual. He's saying there's a need inside every human that only I can fill, that only I can satisfy. It's more than water, he says. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw, to draw, uh, draw with. The well is deep. So how are you going to get this living water? Like, where is it coming from? 
You clearly don't know what you're talking about. This guy has been in the sun too long. Jesus answered her. I love this. He says, everyone who drinks the water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, he says, let me explain it this way. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And over and over again, all throughout Jesus' ministry, he's reminding us and he's saying it even now. I've not come for the healthy. I've come for the sick. I haven't come for the people who don't think they need help. I've come for the people who know they need it. I haven't come to offer help to those who aren't thirsty. I've come to give living water to those who are. I'm here to be with the people that nobody else is thinking about. I'm here to be with people who know they need help. I'm here for you. I'm here to give you life. I'm here to give you away. I'm here to give you more than you ever thought possible. Would you follow me? When you hear this invitation, Jesus, you're a man. You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why would I sit with you? I mean, how should she respond to this invitation? Thank you. I guess I'll grab a seat. I mean, seriously. But what happens here reveals so much about the heart of God and the heart of Jesus that we need to learn from, that churches need to learn from, that Christ followers need to learn from, that that you who don't partake in church at all need to learn from. Jesus begins to let her in on this little secret. She says, Jesus, Jesus, if you knew me, If you knew who I was, if you've known what I've done, if you've known where I've been, you wouldn't offer me a seat at your table. You'd offer me a seat on the Jerry Springer show. Jesus, if you only knew my past, if you only knew what I had done. So then Jesus looks at her and he tells her, hey, would you real quick just just go grab your husband and bring him back? The lady looks back at him and she says, I have no husband. All the single ladies. I'm good. It's just me, Jesus. I have no husband. And Jesus, not being deceived, Jesus, knowing the hearts and minds of men, says this. He says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five. And the man you are now with is not your husband. What you said is quite true. I I know your past. I know what you've done. I know how society has marked you but I'm still offering you a seat. Jesus, you wouldn't offer me a seat if you know what I've done. Jesus said, I know what you've done. Come and sit at my table. But Jesus, I, 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 people hate me. That's why I'm getting water at noon. You want to know why a woman would go draw water at noon? So she wouldn't have to worry about everyone else's tables. She wouldn't have to worry about that awkward feeling of walking in and not having a place to sit, not having people to talk to, feeling like you're the outcast of society. She went at noon because she knew no one else would be there, and she wouldn't have to feel awkward and feel that tension that they feel. This lady's a complete social outcast. She's been ostracized. She's like a pariah. She's been marked with the scarlet A, not once Not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times. She knows what it's like to be on the outside, never feeling like there's a place. She knows what it's like to be pushed out of society, to be pushed out of community, to feel like there's no friends, to feel like no one would care for her. And yet Jesus comes and offers her a seat. See, it just reminds me of of, of what we do. It's like we, we, we we try to stack up all our good efforts 
to the Lord, right? Like, well, I've been good, and I've, I've been generous, and I, and I, I try to, I, I donate to these organizations, and it's almost like Jesus saying, that's good, and that's awesome, and everyone should have a plan to give back into the world, but, but I'm not concerned about that stuff. I just, I just want you to sit and have a conversation, but Jesus, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want me. You don't, know, you don't know what I've done, and Jesus said, I know exactly what you've done. I know what you did last week. I know what you did when you went out Wednesday night with your buddies. I know what happens when you went to, to, to Daytona on spring break. You think, why do you hate Daytona? Go, go to Panama City. Go your trip camping in the woods. I know what you've done. I know what you've thought. I know what you said. I know it all. But it doesn't exclude you from my table. Would you sit with me and have a drink? Jesus. Jesus, come on. If I go in there, lightning's going to crash. If I go in there, the walls are going to cave in. You see, regardless of our past, regardless of what we've done, regardless of where you find yourself this morning, this doesn't exclude you from the invitation. Jesus would say, no, 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 that's, I want you there. Sit with me. You have a seat at my table. The lady said, sir, I can tell that you're a prophet. And I imagine Jesus just begins to smile and says, oh, no, no, it's way better than that. The woman said, I, I know that the Messiah the, called the Christ, I know he's coming. And when he comes, he'll explain all this to me. And I imagine that like, this is like her excuse, right? This is her way out of the conversation. Like, like things are getting weird. You, you, you know a lot. You've been, like, maybe you're stalking me. You've been following me around. I'm just going to go. Like, the Messiah is coming. He'll teach me. He'll tell me everything I need to know. And then Jesus looks at her with all love and all compassion, with all sincerity. He says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm that holy thing that you've been waiting for that you think is going to show your way. And I've reserved a seat at my table for you. Would you sit with me? I've got a place I know society's pushed you out. I know churches, actually, I can't even make it to this service. I know churches have pushed you out. I know families pushed you out. But would you sit with me? I love her reaction to this. Hearing all this, completely bewildered and just completely awestruck at what Jesus does, she leaves her jar and she runs back into town to t talk to the people. And it's almost like Jesus, I can just imagine him saying like, but you forgot your jar. I don't need it. But this is what you came for. I'm good. I got the living water. But you're going to get thirsty again. She runs into town. She says this to all these town people that have marked her with a scarlet A, that have pushed her out on society. And she says, come and see. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Come and see. The guy who knew what I've done and still invited me to sit at his table. And I just, you can imagine the townspeople's reaction. Like, really? Did he tell you everything? Did he tell you about marriage number four and how that ended? Because that was dirty and that was awful. And everyone knows. She's like, yeah, he even said that. Seriously. And he invited you to sit. Yes, and if he invited even me to sit, I'm sure he will invite you. Because it doesn't get worse than me. You can just feel the heartbreak of this woman. I'm the worst. And if I have a place, you surely have a place with him. See, here's what, this, what I think this causes me to do. 
And here's what I think it causes you to do. It's to take an honest look at our lives and answer this question. Who's sitting at your table? Be honest about your table. Have we secluded ourselves so that the people sitting here are the people we like and the people who like us? Have we ostracized and pushed out all of those who perhaps are a little different and maybe think differently or live differently? See, Jesus wouldn't. And I think what Jesus is asking all of us to do is engage on a deeper level. Who's sitting at your table? Be honest about who's there. And live in that tension. And I know this is awkward. I can feel the awkwardness. But in an effort to push it a little further and drive the point home, I'm going to make it even more awkward. I'm going to show you a video. It's a video from Heineken, a beer company. And I know some of you are already put off because you hate Heineken. And you're like, great. Can you think of a better one? <clears throat> I know it's going to make you uncomfortable. But here's the truth. When, when I saw this video this week, I sent it to our elder team. I sent it to our leadership team. And I said, hey, guys, would you show this and some were like, yeah, I should. Yeah, that's awesome. Others were like, Jim, it's your career. If you want to tank it, go for it. <laughs> and I prayed about it, and I, I, I get it. Like, this is uncomfortable. I live in that uncomfort. But I think for the sake of uncomfort, it's important for us to see it. Not for shock value, not to make you feel uncomfortable, but to develop an answer to this question. Who's not sitting at your table but should be? <clears throat> first time I saw that and he walked away, I gasped audibly. <clears throat> Let me push in on this a little further. Who's not sitting at your table? After this video, maybe it's me. Who's not sitting at your table but should be? See, for most of us, we're going to get caught up in, in, in the things you should, that shouldn't be played in church. It's a beer commercial. If you got held up on the beer, let, let me just say this. Jesus drank wine. Jesus turned water into the best wine. That's a conversation for another time. But if you got held up on the social taboos, I get it. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward to be around people who don't believe the way we believe. I live in that. And so did Jesus' disciples. John wraps up the story of Jesus and this woman at the well by saying the disciples came back, they saw Jesus, and they had all these questions, but none of them was man enough to ask. They had all these questions, and he even lists two of them. Jesus why are you talking to her? What do you want? Like, what are you doing, man? They lived in that tension because Jesus was consistently, consistently breaking social norms, offending religious people to pursue the people who were nothing like him, to pursue the people who maybe he had nothing in common with, to say, whoever you are, there's a seat here at my table who's not sitting at your table but should be. one more example, and we'll close with this. There's a book by a Christian author named Richard Beck. It's a great book, and in there he gives this incredible illustration of, of a moral circle. We're going to walk you through the illustration quickly. So I, I just need you to pretend for a moment. Pretend that this is you. <clears throat> Hello, this is you. <clears throat> and around you, there's a bunch of people. So here's a bunch of people surrounding you. And, and the people that, that, that are closest to you, we're going to call those your moral circle. These are the people that you're connected to. They're the people that, that you affiliate with, that are like you, that you like. Maybe you share race or religion or worldviews or political, uh, you know, you're, you're leaning politically one way or the other, whatever it might be. These are the people that you love the most, that you show the most kindness to. 
Now, now for sake of the illustration, we're just going to say that, that you're, you're, you have a friend, you have somebody who's, going, who's becoming a waiter. Has anybody, anybody here waited tables before? So you know the misery that, that's in waiting tables. So you have a, a friend, it could be your brother, it could be your sister, it, it could be a cousin, whoever it is, they, they get a new job as a waiter. They're waiting tables. And it's their first night, so you show up with a group of your friends to support them. You're so excited. But everything goes bad, right? You order a steak, and they bring you cod. And you order a moxie, and they bring you a Diet Pepsi. You ask for coffee, and, and, and they bring you a flavored coffee that's extra sweet with e extra cream. And it's like, that is the most offensive, deplorable taste in the world. And you're, it's, it's totally offensive. You're like, no, nah, I don't care. I don't, I don't even like coffee. Who, who cares? I, I love cod, right? You make all these excuses. Like, I don't even care. It's fine. It's fine. And then at the end of the night, what do you do? You tip big for this horrible experience. They're your friend. You want to encourage them. You show them kindness. You tip them. You want them to feel like, like it's going to be okay. Let's replay the experience. Let's, let's replay this with somebody you don't know. Right? You don't know this guy, but you go and you have the same experience. Right? You, you ask for a moxie, he brings you a diet pepper. You get a steak, ask for a steak, he brings you a cob. And it's horrible. And you're just, we're, we're paying to have a good time. This is ridiculous. Why are we even here? And in your head, you start that mental exercise of like docking the tip. You know what I mean? You started here and you're here and now you're here. And you know what it's like. And, and then uh, what's interesting to me is we have two of the, the same scenarios, two exact situations, and we've treated people completely differently. Why? Because the way that we know, it's, it's your mom or it's your friend or it's your, your sister or your cousin. But then there's the guy on the other side. You see, the people we know, we show kindness to. We show kindness to our kind. But the other waiter, he's someone's kind. He's someone's brother. She's someone's mother. Why do we treat two different groups of people completely differently? Because of our moral circle. And could it be that perhaps Jesus is asking us in this situation, could it be that he's just saying, just, just expand your moral circle just a little bit? Just include the people outside that have been pushed out for years and years that you thought were different and didn't have a place? What would it look like if we expanded our moral circles? What would it look like if we broadened our table? Who's sitting at your table? And Jesus said, just broaden it a little bit. Extend an invitation who's not sitting at your table, but should be. Just be willing to engage. You see, for so many of us, we've been disengaged for so long. As a church, as Christ followers, we've lost the war on engaging our culture. We're known for what we stand against. We're known for our hate. We're known for confronting. We're known for being opposed. And I think Jesus is saying, no, 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 don't disengage. Engage. Get back in. Ask some questions. Be curious. Curiosity is, is like this incredible thing. When we're curious, we enter into the conversation and say, I might disagree with you. We might live different lives. We might believe differently, but I don't know anything, and maybe there's something from you I can learn. Maybe there's something about how you live or about how you talk about what you believe that I can learn from you because I don't have all the answers. Curiosity is an exercise in humility. It's being willing to say, I don't know it all. I don't have all the answers. But I know this, I have a seat at my table, and you're welcome to sit there anytime and talk. And I know some of you, I know what some of you are thinking, but what about confronting? That's what we do. We draw a line and we confront. What about confronting? And the truth is, there is a time to confront. I mean, Jesus, he asked this woman, he confronted her and asked her about the most private, personal, sensitive issue in her life. But here's the difference. When we confront, we confront out of hate and anger and opposition if you're going to confront, 
Move forward with care and concern. Move forward thinking, God, I love you, and I'm concerned about you. Can we talk about this? If you're going to move forward in hate, don't move forward at all. I think Jesus is asking, who's not sitting at your table but should be? And when I look at this and I think, man, what, what would happen? What, just imagine if, imagine if the, the world got, if the church got this right. What would that do for our church? What would it do for our community? Imagine if you got this right. What would this do for your family, for your home, for your neighborhood, for your friends, for your, for your employees, for your, whoever it might be in your life? What would it do if we got this right, if we stopped being so isolated and so concerned about who's like me and who do I like, and started broadening our table and saying, no, no, I've got a big table. You've got a seat anytime. Who's not sitting at your table but should be? Do you think, do you think this does anything to our faith? Do you think this makes our faith grow? Some of you say, oh, I don't think so. I do. This stretches our faith. This causes us to, to, to think and engage and converse in things we might not know anything about. And I think the smaller we keep our table, the smaller our view of God is. Because Jesus' table was huge. And he engaged with people who the rest of society threw to the wayside. You know who Jesus offended over and over and over again? The religious people. Do you know who he went out of his way to engage with all the time? The people who were nothing like him, who didn't believe like he believed and didn't live like he lived and maybe didn't act the way he would have acted. He said, no, 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 that's why I'm here. I'm here to engage with you. And church, if we could get that right, it could change our society forever. We're all about drawing lines. And Jesus was all about crossing them. Who's not sitting at your table but should be? Who was God asking you to engage with? I believe in this so much. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I went out this week and I bought a stack of gift cards. <clears throat> and I want you to have one. And there's more in the back. But I went out and I bought a stack of gift cards. And I got to be honest, I didn't buy enough for everyone. I bought a really short stack. Because there's a catch to this. The gift card isn't for you. This isn't to go out tomorrow and get a vanilla latte on the church. This isn't for your date night this week so you can surprise your wife and have it on the church. This isn't for you to go out with your buddies and have some cappuccinos or whatever you might like. I want you to find me after service. I'm going to be in that hallway. I want you to find me and I want you to get one. But to get one, you've got to promise to go and engage somebody who's not like you. You've got to promise to go and com communicate and converse with somebody who maybe lives differently than you, who maybe thinks differently than you, maybe believes differently than you. If you're willing to do that, I've got a card for you. I told everyone at the end of first service, I hope I run out. I didn't run out. Because everyone lives in this tension, and I get it. I know how uncomfortable you are. I'm uncomfortable. But Jesus lived in that uncomfort, and he lived in that tension. And he said, if you want to know what God would do, follow me. Follow me into Samaria. Follow me to that well. Follow me to that woman who no one else liked, and I'll show you the heart of God. Who's not sitting at your table but should be?
Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this incredible story. God, for, for the way Jesus lived, it was just completely countercultural to, to first century culture, God, and even to 21st century culture. But I pray that we would learn from it. I pray that you'd give us the wisdom to see, God, that you loved us so much that you began to engage with us. Your, your scripture says, God, that we were still sinners. You loved us and you sent Jesus for us. That we were your enemies, that we had an opposing view, that we lived life differently. And in offense to you, you still loved us and you came after us. God, I pray that we would begin to even understand the, the remotest idea and thought and heart of that. God, that we would begin to engage those, that we would begin to communicate, that we would begin to go for the people, God who feel like they're on the outs, who feel like they've been pushed out, maybe from the church, maybe from our families, maybe from our neighborhoods, and begin to engage. Give us the wisdom to see the truth in this, God, and the courage to carry it out. In Jesus' name.